Psst, before you stick this in your ears, know this. The content presented in this show is designed for a mature audience with a functioning sense of humor. If you are not an adult, are easily offended, or take life too seriously, this is not the show for you. For everyone else... Hello, let's go for a ride. Ninth story. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the ninth story. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, lived a giant, a mouse and two chimps on a gavin board. One day, the bus chimp said to the Welcome to the Ninth Story Podcast. Appreciate all the work that Craig Weber has done to get us into the Hall of Fame finally. Well, Gene, it's been my honor. It was a labor of love. I will take all the credit at the risk of being sued by your demonness. The best way to make money from your fans is to sue them. <laughs> you know, that's a philosophy, Gene, that I live my life about. And again, you, Paul, and all of the other castmates, I guess, for lack of a better word, something I'll get to later. They, it's about fucking time that they got inducted into the Hall of Fame because... Well, Dan well, is obviously he, Dan is so emotional about it he can't make sense. We're both huge devotees of Kiss. We've talked about them a few times on the show before. They've finally got an entree into the Hall of Fame. We should at least give a shout out to them and have a little more fun with with uh, with the boys because we love yeah. the demon, we love the Star Child, and we love all of the other characters: the spaceman, the cat, the fox, the unk. Meow. But anyway, the thing is, Kiss has influenced. Me, you, and countless other defendants. We have influenced <laughs> at least 15 other people. Right. I understand the criteria for what is the Hall of Fame. You have to have X amount of albums on. I don't know that variable, but you have to have had a music career that lasts. Like from the time your first album came out, there 15 years has to go by wow. until the time that you're eligible. Kiss became eligible for the Hall of Fame a long time ago. 1999 was their first year of eligibility. That's so I guess sad. it's 25 years because their debut album came out in 74. And I think as long as you have a career or you're still relevant after 25 years or whatever. <laughs> um, but between 74 and 99... Kiss, through all of their trials and tribulations, had a pretty good fucking run. They sold cabillion dollars worth of merchandise, albums, everything. They influenced you know what you virtually need is the Kiss coffin, the Kiss lunchbox, right. the Kiss toilet paper, the Kiss underwear. Pick yourself up a Kiss microphone and also a Kiss cup. I'm not talking the one you drink out of. Hey, now, Eddie Trunk on that metal show made a great point that. Have if, they had Gene and Paul? No, Gene and Paul won't go on there. Ace and Peter have gone on there. Bruce Kulick, I have seen on the show before. Yes. Um, Tommy Thayer, probably not. He's probably not allowed to. Guess what, boys? I'm sure. I'm here on the Ninth Story Podcast. <laughs> That's right. Hey, Eddie Trunk and all you other jack wagons <laughs> over at that metal show. We got Gene over here. Guess who's here? Gene Simmons. 
Gene's here with us. You tell me, Gene. Paul's not here to defend his uh, his self, you know, himself. He got a lot of tail. <laughs> More tail than a toilet seat. Here's a couple of things, Gene. Uh, investigative minds want to know. When Paul got more tail than a toilet seat, you never tell us what kind of tail. That would be kitty cat tail. Okay, fair enough. Meow. Next question. When a lucky fan went home from a show with a star on their crotch, yes. you never qualified whether the fan was a male or female. Uh, that's correct. <laughs> well done. Well played, demon. <laughs> um, okay. So based that's on those responses. That wings on my face. I think we should put you in the Hall of Fame based solely upon your responses. <laughs> um, so an honor well deserved. Uh, Chaim. Chaim. Uh, so Eddie Trunk I'm made just a great a point. Boy. So Gene, let me ask you this. Yeah, let me ask point. you this question while we've got uh, you in the studio. Kiss is like steak and ice cream. It's yes, something I, for everyone. I'm, I, with all due respect, I've heard you say that many times before on the yes, Night Story podcast. On the Night Story podcast, but I don't know what that means. I have uh, a lot to say. <laughs> well, and you certainly have a forum in which to do that at present, right? <laughs> and the best way to make money from your fans is to sue them. Well, okay. But speaking of which, is it true? Witches are uh, green, and they're from the Wizard of Oz. Is it? I don't know what that means. But back to your previous comment about suing people. Yes. Is it true that any Vincent? I fucked a lot of girls named Sue. Let me tell you that much. I'm sure you did. Were any of the girls named Sue either Diana Ross or Cher? Uh, Cher. So you broke her in for Richie Sambora? Well. That's one way to look at it. Of course. Uh, so my you next... Know, my tongue actually isn't that long. It's just got a spin cycle. <laughs> we love that one. We loved that in 1975 the first time you said it. Um, so is it true that your tongue is 11 inches long because if it was 12, it would be a foot? You got a good point there. <laughs> I thought so. Um, Vinny Vincent, did he truly hey, sue Vinny Vincent. Did Vinny sue you? times. Is that right? Is that so that is confirmed? 14. And he lost Not how nine. many times? Well, 14. He sued you 14 times and lost all 14 I times. I bad for him. Is that because he sued us? Well, why do you feel bad for him? You won. Just like you did when What was your previous comment? I need to look back through my notes about Jesus being a Jew. Jesus was a Jew, so I win. Okay, we don't know what that means. If if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. Okay, you and Johnny Cochran make no sense. Uh, Mr. Simmons, or fake Gene Simmons, as I may refer to you, is it true that you once referred to, um, let me get this right, Mark St. John, who played on the Animalize album, did you truly refer to his guitar playing as... An angry bee flying around your head, the most irritating sound, and he would show you that his fingers could stretch 11 frets. Have you ever had a bee in your bonnet? I, I have, but I'm not... It's almost like having a mosquito in your ear. Well, indeed it is, or Mr. Simmons. a tongue in your ear. However, I... Which some people find enjoyable. Well, okay, speaking of tongues and enjoyable, and pardon me, that using your own terminology, that it would stretch 11 frets, I'm sorry, is that a Freudian slip? Were you jealous of the size of his reach that it could go 11 frets? And is that some way you accounting for the fact that maybe your tongue and or your manhood is not quite as sizable as the stretch of Mark St. John's hand? 
Are you talking about my schmeckle? I'm not sure at this point. Uh, Bruce Kulik, anything. Do you uh, have anything to say about Bruce? You know, some people tell me that I have a cool lick. And, and, and that's both on the guitar. That is and true. With the we we tried to reach out to both Ms. Ross and Cher. Neither one of them were available for comment. Well, Tommy Shannon, Thayer. Shannon currently, will tell you quite a few things. We could care less about Shannon. <laughs> Tommy Thayer, the current ace of the band. We've gotten a book written about how awful he is. It's in the vault. It's waiting for him to leave the band. And yet, you say when Ace left again. He became the guy, and he's the best of all possible worlds. That's right. You, okay. So For right just, now, he's the best there is. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. That seems to be the way, that seems to be the KISS MO. Whoever is in the band at the present is, time yes, exactly. is the greatest artist the ever. The greatest artist until the next one. Okay. I, I see my picture there with the makeup. You don't feel... F- one last question, Gene Simmons, yes. before we... Before the drugs and the booze and everything. Uh, never touched any of that stuff. This is not about you, believe it or not. No. This is about Ace Freely. Uh, he really f- took a lot of drugs. Fair point. This is your quote. These are your words. Before the drugs and the booze, and, the everything, drugs, the booze and everything, he was basically, he was basically Ace. Ace. A lovable, a lovable loving guy. guy. Mr. Simmons, first, I don't think you can do that to the English language. I don't think you can refer to somebody as a lovable, loving guy. You can fuck anything you want. Fair enough. You probably copyrighted the English language and or created it. (laughs) We all cared for him. I was in touch with this this young uh, gentleman from uh, the band Ignorant, and he and I have agreed uh, to rewrite the English language <laughs> to suit our needs. We, we all look forward to that. I'm sure the listeners of the Nice Story do as well. Of course they do. The, again, your words, Mr. Simmons. We all cared for him. I loved him. I loved the straight ace, but I fucking hate any drug addict because they're possessed. By a demon. Uh, okay, possessed by a demon. The straight ace, are you implying that he was in fact not straight at any time? And was there, in fact, a relationship between Ace and Paul? Paul and uh, Ace were really good friends. Okay. Anything about Peter? Do you love Peter? I have a great Peter. I just want to hear I love Peter coming out of your mouth. I'm sure you you would love Peter coming out of your (laughs) mouth. Thank you, Mr. Gene Simmons. Back to the original broadcast. That's right. This is uh, Craig back at the ninth story. And um, that was fake Gene Simmons in the studio. Um, Absolutely, 100% completely the, fake. The interview didn't go anywhere. We really wanted to take some time to applaud and acknowledge Kiss for finally being documented in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, clearly, it's fucking time. Clearly, Gene was not in the mood to play ball with us, which is fine. That's what we get. That's what Paul likes to do is play ball. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> I think Gene Simmons has snuck back into the studio. <laughs> you, can't, you can't keep that son of a bitch out. So... While we're in the Hall of Fame mode, just a couple of quick things. This is for this is for Dan and I. Um, oh, hey, hey, I I, I I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it, it's something that that vexes me, so to speak, uh. because we talk about Kiss and with all seriousness, Kiss is clearly an act. Whatever they are, oh, yeah. an artist oh, yeah, that is absolutely. deserving of being in the Hall of Fame. Yes. they truly should have been in the Hall of Fame back in 1999. When they first became eligible, I do agree. Eddie Trunk's hypothesis on this when they first became. Yeah, what did Eddie Trunk think about that? Because I know he's a big Kiss fan. He is. And he's long been a proponent of them getting into the Hall of Fame. When it was finally announced, I guess he had 
I think he had Ace on his show, and this is what created the flack, and that's what really gave rise to me wanting to talk about it on the show, is because they, KISS, have decided not to perform what? at the induction ceremony. They're not performing. They're not performing at their own induction. They're not. Well, and, and the you re- know what? I, kinda, I can kind of see that, actually. Right. And the thing is, it's become this huge thing about which version Right well, you now. know, they could do what Yes did whenever they did the reunion tour. Was it Union? Right. That, which and is, they had three sets, and, and it was basically all of the iterations of Yes. And then at the end, they had everybody out there. D- that's, a, that's a delicious foreshadowing delicious. there, Daniel, because A, you're right, but B, Yes is, and I don't know if you know this, Yes is, they're not in the Hall of Fame either. Yes is not. They're one of the bands that I want to talk about in in the next few moments as a band that they are not. They are not currently in the Hall of Fame. See, this is why I don't follow music. That's that's right. It would just this piss me the. Fuck this is off. why you don't because the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is more political than yeah. the Baseball Hall of Fame, and that's saying something. There was that, one year where I worked for this company, and all the bigwigs were supposed to go to the Hall of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for some sort of conference. And for whatever reason, none of them could go. So all of us schmucks got to go instead. And it was awesome. Did you go what over I, to Cleveland the year they went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah. Oh, that's very nice. And what I remember the most, what affected me the most, was seeing the handwritten In My Life by John yeah, Lennon. Yeah, yeah. I stood and I looked at that for like half an hour. I was just, holy shit, this is John Lennon's handwriting. That's right, yeah. And it was like, you know, you could see where he crossed out a word and wrote another word. And it was just... I don't know. I'm, I'm a huge Beatles fan, so right, but, but, it but was like visceral. Right. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. it was and, 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 and that's a, that's a great stepping off point because the impact that John Lennon has on you, John Lennon, believe it or not, had that same impact on Gene Simmons and on Paul Stanley. Oh, they, yeah. they were both hugely inspired by the mm-hmm. Beatles. And the same impact that, that the Beatles had on Kiss, Kiss then had on a variety yes. of other artists. It's amazing I mean, again, how that works. You've got to get past the, all the theatrics, all the bombast that is the demon and the star child and all the fun that we have with them, the mm-hmm. makeup, the non-makeup, the makeup again, the fire, all that stuff. They're good they, musicians. They're good right, writers. They, they really are. They're great writers. They get it. They they get the business. They get everything about the music business. Am I supposed to art, maintain artistic creativity? I can do that, and I can keep my integrity. But when I do that, you don't like it. I can also do this, and I can put on a show, and I can sell millions of records. <laughs> but we're, we're, whatever it is we do, you don't think it's worthy enough for our nomination into the Hall of Fame until now. I've been eligible since 1999. Yeah, and what made it happen Nothing. all of a sudden? Oh, right, exactly. And Eddie Trunk's point was everything could have been avoided about this debacle about which lineup would perform if kiss is what they refer to in baseball vernacular for the (laughs) hall of fame as a first ballot hall of famer in 1999 they should have gone into the hall of fame no question about it and had they done it then the original lineup was back together at that time. That was when it was all, it was Gene, Paul, Ace, and Peter. Yeah. They were together. And they were together until 2003 when it all blew up again. So and who's that, inducted? Kiss. Uh, and that's, just, that's, Kiss. It's Kiss. And which kind of leads me to the question that I have for you yeah. is Gene and Paul kind of have this thing. It's like, Kiss is Kiss. It doesn't matter. Who's the cat or who's the ace? Kiss is the demon, the star child, the cat, and the spaceman. And I don't give a shit if it's Ace or Paul or Tommy and Eric Singer mm-hmm. right now. The characters are the characters. It doesn't matter who puts on the bat suit. Batman is Batman. 
you have a good point there. I mean, I, it's not my kiss, point. It's really, uh, and I don't want to take. That's really yeah. what Paul and Jean are saying. No, I mean, I, and I agree with that. I mean, Kiss is Jean and Paul. Yeah. I mean, really, if you boil it down, it's Jean and Paul. I mean, I'm not to take anything away from. And, and I think you're not right. To take anything away from from Peter. Yeah. But they have been kissed. They they are invested in the franchise. That's right. And and it's funny when you depending on who you at any point in their franchise history. Yeah. There have been times where it's only been Paul carrying the mantle yeah. and Gene carrying the mantle. That's kind of endearing to me hearing these guys who have had a 40 year relationship. Yeah. That's really become family. Okay, this is our thing. Yeah. And they both, they're openly critical of Ace and Peter, the original guys, because mm-hmm. of their substance abuse and all right. the shit they went through. And Gene and Paul were kind of like, you know what? No, we love you guys, but it's a business and fuck you. Exactly right. Yeah. You can't support, you can try to help somebody that mm-hmm. has that type of problem, but eventually you get to the point where you're just like, You've got a problem. you got to deal with it. We're moving on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things before we move off of KISS. Uh, I mentioned this to, to Dan earlier, and I, I'm going to try not to take this into the gutter. Nothing to lose. It's an age-old KISS classic, and I just found this out recently, and I didn't know this. You know, before you do that, one of the things i, I got to tell you that I really respected about KISS when they were close to the end. Yeah. The original KISS. When, when was that? The, well, whenever they did their four uh, albums. Dan. Um, we're not, we've never been uh, close well, to Well, the, the original lineup, let's say. That was 1979. Yeah, and they did the four albums, no, right? I'm with you, the solo albums. Yeah, yeah, because everybody wanted to go off in their different direction, and yeah. they managed to hold it together for a little bit longer by saying, okay, that's fine. Let's each release our own solo project, and the best thing is Gene Simmons singing When You Wish Upon When a You Wish Upon a <laughs> I remember my friend John. I don't know if John listens or not, but my friend John in Texas. I'm actually going to visit him in April. I haven't seen him in years. But I remember him holding up back whenever you had records and albums. And he played When You Wish Upon a Star, and he held it up in front of his face. It was a surreal experience to see Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons singing When You Wish Upon a Star. With the full makeup on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it doesn't fit, and it's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I was, it's no surprise to anybody who knows me, but uh, for those who don't, I've been a huge fan, and my brother was a huge Kiss fan. My brother's two years older than I am, and he played bass, I played guitar, he was Gene Simmons, and I tried to be either Paul or, or Ace, whoever. Between the two of us, we had all four of the solo albums. And over just a year ago, I went through this Kiss phase again where I was going back and getting all of the old Kiss stuff that I never had on CD. But I purchased... Paul's solo album and Aces. <laughs> nice. Peter's socks and Jeans is fractured, <laughs> to say the least. Paul's is the closest thing to a Kiss album. It's and and that's where I was yeah. like, Paul probably at that time was Kiss. Yes, my understanding of Kiss. He had it. Yes, he absorbed and, it. And so was Ace. But a- the Ace's solo album goes to show us that when Ace freely was on, and this is what everybody has always said about him. Ace was one of those guys that he became so addled by drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. that he stopped being Ace. But when you read the stuff that Paul has to say about Ace, he is more upset about Ace because he pissed away his talent. Yeah. And he says that. He's like, he stopped practicing. He became more concerned about drinking, going to poker games, not yeah. showing up at the studio, all of that stuff. And I think anybody who's a Kiss fan understands that that is truly what happened to Ace, really. Yeah. And Peter even says that as well. Anyway, what I was going to say about Nothing to Lose Something I recently found out. Nothing to lose is apparently about anal sex. <coughs> I had no idea. What? The question 
You performed a de- your debut single, Nothing to Lose, a song which I imagine at the time people didn't notice is about anal sex. Who said this? This is Guitar World's interviewer asking Gene Simmons, who says, <laughs> that's right. I thought about the back door. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> the follow-up to that is, in hindsight, it's pretty obvious, to which Gene says, hindsight, but umpa. The lyric <laughs> came from, and then he starts talking about Willie Dixon, Backdoor Man, which is an old blues standard, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and, and Jim Morrison co-opted part of that. Exactly, and he talks a little bit about that as well. But that's the thing. I never, I never knew that Nothing to Lose. I, I, and I guess I got to go back and listen to Nothing to Lose. I, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty familiar with the song, but I never would have made you mentioned the lyrics. I, yeah. Right. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I didn't, I didn't know well, what the fuck I was you, listening to. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't understand the double entendre. I didn't understand yeah. the euphemism. I didn't understand anything. So before we move off of the kiss, other bands that are not in the Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. Um, Pantera. I know you're not too familiar with the band Pantera. Um, you and the Doctor are. Yeah, we talked about this on a previous episode. They're they're one of these bands that is listed as, you know, should they be in the Hall of Fame? The, the thing is that I look at Pantera... I think there's a sentimental vote there. Their guitar player was killed. I don't know. I mean, Pantera is a great band. Are they Hall of Fame worthy? I don't know. Slayer. Slayer is is put in that that category of hey Metallica's in there and Metallica <laughs> is acceptable to the masses and that's kind of the criticism yeah. like Slayer while they were similar viewed in the same vein as Metallica they were never viewed as or acceptable to the to, yeah, to, yeah. to, to, to the great unwashed Fugazi. Now, what? I didn't know if you were familiar with the band Fugazi. No, I'm not. Well, Fugazi, and there's a Are great... Are they Japanese? No, there's a great quote in here that I'm going to read. When indie, metal thrash, and grunge guitarists give interviews, they invariably cite Fugazi as an influence. Really? In certain circles, a Fugazi t-shirt has de rigueur as a pair of Doc Martin boots and a wallet chain. Uh-huh. So so that's the thing. And, and that is true because Fugazi... Is one of those bands that you always hear, like the guys in Anthrax, the guys in like. Countless- Would I be familiar with Fugazi if I heard a song? And this is the thing: I'm a musician, and mm-hmm. I and I put myself out there as a musician. I only know of Fugazi by reading what other musicians say about mm. them. And I think that is the core to back to my Kiss argument. If you're a band that influenced countless others. Again, back to the whole the writing thing, the yeah. story thing that we always talk about. If you have had that much of an influence on a whole generation of other people, and if other people are always citing your work, citing the influence of your work, yes. then d- you you should perhaps be Hall of Fame worthy. You would think, right? You would think so. Stevie Ray Vaughan, d- you know, uh, I know Stevie. What can, does that surprise Stevie Ray Vaughan's He's on the not Hall of Fame? In the Hall of Fame. He's not. That that always ama- that amazes me. That surprises me more than Kiss not being in the Hall of Fame. Kind of, me too, because I always think that you know you get a certain amount of sympathy from all due respect the death vote. Uh, yeah, you, you know, and I think Stevie Ray Vaughan died in 1990, so he's been gone for a long yeah, time. Yeah, so just he, like, well, he doesn't give a shit. He's yeah. dead. I, mean, I have to imagine eventually he's going to get posthumous. In How about Cheap Trick? Cheap Trick is not in the Hall of Fame. Really? Yeah. And Cheap Trick, now, again. I've seen them at concerts. I I saw them at a fair one time. Well, here's the thing, though. Rock critics have always loved Cheap Trick. They've sold a lot of records. Mm-hmm. They've been they've influenced a lot of other artists. You hear other artists talk about them all the time. Boston. Boston's not in the Hall of Fame. Should uh, Boston be in the Hall of Fame? Boston fucking definitely should be in the Hall of Fame. Are you fucking kidding if me? If nothing else, because Boston See, is... See, this is why I don't follow music, man, because I would right. get fucking pissed off. Did you know Ozzy Osbourne's not in the Hall of Fame? 
Black Sabbath no. is in the Hall of Fame. But Ozzy Osbourne as an individual artist is not in the Hall of Fame. Really? Exactly. You know, like Madonna, well, Madonna's in the Hall of Fame. She's all fucking politics. You know, it? Public Enemy's in the Hall of Fame. Who? Which again, I'm not ripping on these people, but I'm just saying. Who? Public Enemy, the rap act. Yeah, that's right. Wait, 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 wait. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. They're so, a rapper. Right. And they're in the rock and roll. That's right. That's right. Hall of Fame. Yeah. Rock and roll. That's right. And rap. Yeah. That's exactly well, right. You know, I did see an interview recently with Gene Simmons, which I alluded to whenever I was I was making fun of Gene. Basically, Gene was saying that rappers are the new rock stars. Yeah. Because rock stars decided that they didn't want to be all flashy and they didn't want people to know how much money they had. But I still don't think well, that and the, and rappers the thing is, are I supposed think, to be in the rock again, and roll Hall of Fame. As much as we make fun of the guy, I, I actually think Gene and Paul, they always understood the business of music. Oh, well, goddamn, yeah. And Gene, that's Gene's thing, an think, incredible businessman, and he's he's an intelligent man. I think he Gene's speaks, incredibly pragmatic about that. He speaks like, like eight languages right. or something. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a smart guy. He's probably like, I don't give a shit. You, whether I'm in the Hall of Fame or not, go he's ahead. still making a ton right, of fucking go money. Go ahead and put Public Enemy in there. I give a shit. They're not touring still. They broke up 15 years ago. They're not doing anything. I just played at Dodger Stadium. <laughs> that's right. You know, I think that's the thing. But a couple of things that stick in my crop, two bands, Deep Purple and Iron Maiden are not in the Hall of Fame. And I'm, I'm, really? And here's the thing that – this is what irks me about – is Ted Nugent not in the Hall of Fame? Ted Nugent's not in the Hall of Fame. Oh. I, I, see, I, see you, I see you have glimpsed ahead. You've, you've scanned the photo of the great white buffalo and you've seen that Ted Nugent's not in the Hall of Fame. Um, which again, I got a real fucking problem with that. I'm, one. Not, I'm not a big fan of Ted Nugent. I'm a fan of the personally. Nugent. I mean, I don't, I don't, I just don't. Ted Nugent is a whack job. In well, he is a he is a bit of a whack job. He, an entertaining whack job. Yes. an entertaining whack job. I, I'm just saying musically, I'm just not. I've never. Ted has written a couple of really great songs. I will say that. Cat Scratch Fever. Right. Cat, Cat Scratch Fever. I like. Um, Stranglehold. I don't like. But. He is an icon. He, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like it. I mean, Ted Nugent is Ted Nugent. You know who he is. He's guy, entertaining. He's influenced a shitload of people, and he's entertaining. I, I'm not talking about his politics. I'm just saying, musically, I've never been yeah. that much of a fan of Ted. But I would be a hypocrite if I didn't acknowledge the sphere of influence that Ted has. Yeah. He has, and he's had a, a hell of a career. He's hung out with a ton of fucking The guy's been around too. for 40-some years. Yeah. Amen. I mean, he, he stood the test of time. He is the Hall of Fame. As far as I'm <laughs> concerned, the guy is, I mean, there should be a statue of Ted. Yeah. Whether I like him or not, there should really be a statue of the damn guy out front. But Deep Purple and Iron Maiden, their exclusion from the Hall of Fame bothers me because you take a look at a band like Metallica, whom I love. I, I like Metallica, or, or I will say I love Metallica. Yeah. Metallica themselves will tell you the two of the biggest influences on their career were Deep Purple and Iron Maiden. Yet uh, Metallica's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And Deep Purple and Iron Maiden aren't. Yeah, that's fucked up. And and I th then it becomes a matter of, I think, record sales. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, Metallica sold more than them. Deep Purple and Iron Maiden are still out there. They're banging it out. They're putting out records. They tour. They've made a lot of money. They've sold a lot of albums. So it becomes that question of like, is it longevity of career or is it album sales? Well, which way do you want to go? Because if that's the case, then Kiss, again, should have been in in 1999. Yeah. Back to that argument. So anyway, yeah, the Nuge. The Nuge is not um, – That's fucked up. Yeah. And the thing about Ted Nugent is he's been around since the 70s. Yeah. Out of anybody that's alive today that's a rocker, 
Ted Nugent is Mr. Rock and Roll. Yeah, and and I think unfortunately, I think Nuge gets a bad rap because a lot of the writers for the the people who vote, and, and again, and I say this as a liberal, are liberals. Yeah. Jan Winter from Rolling Stone is yeah, one of the yeah, biggest yeah, voters, yeah, yeah. and Ted's an unabashed conservative. And I think people don't like that. And they and again, it's like everything else; they don't put him in the Hall of Fame for that reason, and that sucks. Uh, the last one that because we touched on this earlier, um, yes, yeah, seriously. Um, the, probably the definitive progressive rock band out there in the, the, the uh, influenced a variety of people. Yeah, and they were very innovative. I mean, absolutely, they took took classic and jazz, and blues, and And rock, rock, yeah, and just morphed it into something new. And I mean, I think that's what the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be about. It should be. It's a museum. Yes, and it's supposed to be. We accept and acknowledge all kinds. I think yes gets thrown into that whole thing. Like, well, that's like thinking man's rock. And it's too smart. It's it's classical music. It's a jazz. Yeah. It's rock. It's this. It's that. And it's it's hard to listen to. It's tough to grasp. I'm but yes, hard to listen. Definitely to, should me. be. Um, definitely should be considered. Why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and do some more fun stuff. All right, fantastic, all right, fantastic. Hey, this is a stepfather from the Caveman Mafia. You're listening to the Night Story Podcast. All right, this time we got a solid red light instead of a blinking red light. So, welcome back to the Night Story Podcast. Welcome back. So we're gonna we're gonna quickly. Um, we're two indie gentlemen. Let's kick back, have our nice. drinks, smoking uh, non macanudos with yeah. the real Dan Wedick and the real Craig Weber. That's right. Uh, not the fake Gene Simmons. That's uh, correct. We kicked the fake demon out of the fake studio. <laughs> that's right. We got the we got, Victoria's hanging out with yeah. us, but that's so, right. so we got She's Victoria. My protection. She's back operating the lift for us. That's right. Um, so. Um, by the time this episode airs, hopefully all the dust will have settled on a, a, a little dust up I started. Um, yeah. On uh, I, I, w- I was trying to throw some props and some some actually so, not you actually. Trying to throw some genuine props to a friend. I was. I was. I was th- respectfully appreciating. Right. One of our gentlemen friends. Because that's what I do. I mean, that's my role. That's my. That's how you that, roll. That's 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 how I roll, bitch. <laughs> Um, yeah, bitch. Well, the, the the contribution that Craig Weber makes on as he walks this earth is to try to recognize and respect the talent of um, a lot of the friends and the people he comes into contact with, and I and I try to throw a sincere accolade out to my pal and our pal friend of the show, Doctor John Towers. Yeah, um, and I was trying to draw. Some reference back to, I mean, selfishly, I was trying to draw some reference back to a show that we had done um, where John, you know, sat right here to my left in the Ninth Story Studios. and Episode 13 in two parts and his show, episode 130. That's right. And it was a, it was a social experiment where the three of us, yeah. you know, me as a liberal, John as a conservative, and Dan as a pretty Lib- much an independent, let's libertarian, say. Libertarian. Yeah. yeah, libertarian. We sat down and we showed that, you know, three 
well-read, educated, philosophical, articulate guys can talk about politics with without, without the vitriol, right? Without making right, exactly without making it personal. That's a great point. Um, that's what the three-party system, four-party system, five-party system. However many, the, the, the that's two, what it's right. supposed to be. Whatever is, the party system yes. is, it's, it's the whole thing about at the end of the day. You should do what's best for – without sounding hokey, you should do what's best for the American people. Right. Sam Nothing. and Wiley punch out and they go and have lunch. That's and right. Then they go back to work again. That's, a, that's a great point. It's the – Sam and Wiley is a great point. And we talked about that in terms of Ron Reagan and Tip O'Neill during yes. the course of that episode. Yes, about we that, did. You know, that they were – you know, com- political adversaries who, as soon as the the whistle sounded at the end of the day, they went out and bent elbows together. They were buddies, yeah, right, exactly. That's respect, and that was the point we were trying to make. Yes. So then, uh, you know, I naively think that every now and then I can try <laughs> to throw something out there that is should be politically neutral. Yes, in the hopes that in the hopes that my sheep will follow me to the flock where I want them to go. That's all tongue-in-cheek, everybody. (laughs) Listen, there's a way to talk about dissent. There's a proper way to argue. There's a proper way to debate. There's a forum. And and when I I say I stupidly did it, I understand that social media probably isn't the context to do it. If anybody wants to learn more about that, listen to John Towers, episode 135 of the Red Horse Radio, where where if you want to listen to somebody talk, from an educated perspective, a philosophical perspective, while smoking a a Macanudo, a Macanudo, right? yeah, um, and drinking a Red Horse, which you'll have to listen to the show to get the recipe for that. It's good listening. John has a good twenty-seven minutes uninterrupted on this topic. Absolutely nailed it. He's laid back, friendly. He's a class act, man. He, he is. Dan and I talk about this a lot that we try to keep this show from being too political. But every now and then, you know, it just every, everything branches over. In that vein, and I don't want anybody to think that I'm taking sides, but I read something this morning. There was a news bit. Catholic group leader calls for liberal academics to be taken out and shot. That's, that's <laughs> the quote. Taken out and shot. That's and a little that, extreme. And that came from Austin Ruse. President of the nonprofit research group Catholic Family and Human Rights Institute. That was made by somebody who was involved in a conversation that uh, Dr. John Towers and I had had before. And the, the only reason I bring it up is because I'm a liberal, and this draws attention to the fact that I, I'm not going to say, see, here's where conservatives are jackasses. My point here is everybody does it. And that was John's point, too. Each side of the argument has extremist views, whether you're conservative or liberal. Everybody gets extreme, and I get it. Conservatives don't ever think that what they say is extreme, and liberals don't ever think what they say is extreme. And where John nailed it before, and this is is kind of a – I think it's John joking. I always say that I'm a pragmatist, and John says, well, pragmatism every now and then is boring. John's right, but every now and then, boring is what you need to run a society. So so the only reason I chose – to jump over here to make this point is I wanted to get a bonus use your illusion segment in because it's been a while since we've done them. We, did we, one. we owe you guys a couple right. use your illusions. We, we, we squeeze one into episode 18 and episode 19 right, is going to be a double use your illusion. Oh yeah, episode. double squeeze it in. So, cue the music. Okay, there it is. Your illusion. And for the kids at home, that's illusion with, 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 with an, an A. a. 
For this episode of Use Your Illusion, sound and fury, because oftentimes political discourse, I think, is the equivalent of Billy Shakespeare's sound and fury. It really is. I think I commented on one of your your social media posts one time. You did one time. You you threw that in there. You did, and that has uh, that has inspired this uh, (laughs) this edition of Sound and Fury. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it really signifies nothing. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Fake Gene Simmons. He he managed to fight his way past the security, and he somehow outwitted Victoria and, and uh, over over. Oh, he'll her. be sorry. He took control of the the uh, the, the lift, he'll and be he sorry. got himself up here. That's right. The bad seed will. She'll get you, demon. Don't That's worry. Right. Don't worry. She was a demon long before you were. That's right. Um, so, sound and fury is great, but meaningless noise and commotion. And I think that really says it. That's what a lot of political discourse is. I'm sorry. It, it just is. You're correct. And I love political arguments as much as the next guy. In but the really, Greek sense it, of argument. That's right, that's right. When you get right down to it, 99% of it is just noise and commotion. It's misdirection. It becomes, it's the ad Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's, that's exactly right. Because, you know, going back to that base thing that I just read, from from Austin Ruse, that has nothing to do with politics. When you attack, when you've got a religious leader attacking somebody in liberal academia, you've just attacked two things, unbeknownst maybe to yourself, that have nothing to do with politics. Mm. Your religion should have nothing to do with politics, yes. and your level of academia. Seriously, I am so t- that is the one thing where I get a little agitated from a liberal perspective because too many times conservatives say liberal academias. And I get it that I go off the rails upon this, but if you talk to any parent in the world, they will tell you, okay, what's your biggest thing? I want my child to go to Harvard. Okay, why? Why would you ever want to do that? Because, God damn it, if your kid goes to Harvard, they're going to graduate from Harvard and everybody in the world's going to attack them because they're going to think they're an <laughs> academic. So why well, would you wish wasn't that? Wasn't that your child? point of the whole post? That's, to that's, 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 that's always been my point. That's, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's like, like, hey, right. you know, you are the antithesis of. That's Exactly right. That was thank you, Dan. That that is my point. John is an incredibly smart, well-read guy. And yes. academia and education is good. I give a shit what if you where you went to school or if you never went to school. Period. Mm-hmm. What you know is what you know. The way you articulate your ideas, your thoughts, your passion, what does or doesn't inspire you, the way you feel about things. That's what I care about. I give a shit what your diploma says. Yeah, exactly right. And that's that was really the underlying point that nobody fucking got <laughs> so again that's why that 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 that, that was again john got it you got it nobody else got it anyway i'm sure some uh, there were a lot yeah, of people I, 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 you're right I, now i'm now I'm being there was one there was one specific person that probably didn't well, get there it there were a couple people even some of the conservatives who uh, who attached on them, I, I appreciated their sense of humor yeah you know there were a couple of people who were like hey that was well said you filthy liberal i loved that <laughs> i loved it I, I i don't know that guy but i loved that post it was great oh, I loved that's it. funny um anyway so but so back to the base point about uh, meaningless noise and commotion. Yeah, you know, coming off of my meaningless noise and commotion. Um, 
it, it, to those who don't know, this is from Shakespeare's Macbeth, Act uh, 5, Scene 5, spoken by Macbeth. Yes. When he learns of the death of his wife, and the quote is, life's but a wife. And this is one of the greatest uh, yes. bits of written. I mean, mm. hey, I don't know if anybody knows this. It's better than a Macanudo. R- listeners who are new to the show, Billy Shakespeare, well, he could write. He could. He had. He had some. Uh, yeah, he had some skill with the pen there. He knew what to do with the quill. He did. He knew where to put it on the parchment. Yeah, a if lot I more may, than than Saint John. If I may steal a little Christian Saint John Smythe's yeah. thunder, that little bastard. Yeah. Um, this is one Brit that we give a shit about. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Shakespeare. Yes. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot <laughs> full of sound and fury, yes. signifying nothing. Yes. Fantastic. I, that is one of the greatest bits of writing ever. I love the told by an idiot <laughs> full of sound and you fury. You know what's funny to me? 300 years from now, people will still be quoting They that. will, and they should be. It, exactly. It, it, it's, it's, like, it's a universal right. truth. I love that. We'll be colonizing other stars, yeah. and people will still be quoting this shit. Because right. it just, it, it's relevant always. It's, uh, and, and I think exactly. that's one of the things where I think you could really put the, you can put the ellipsis in here and say life dot dot dot. Is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Yes. Yeah. The tale of an idiot. Yeah, it really is. Um, and, and the thing that, you know, that, that, that went on that inspired, uh, William Faulkner in 1929, who wrote The Sound and the Fury, uh, that was yeah. based upon that. And then one of my, one of, one of my favorite uses of this particular illusion, um, came from screen actor Robert Redford, who said, somebody asked him about whether he was watching the Super Bowl. And, um, he said, I'll be out skiing. The Super Bowl is a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> then the writer jumped back in and said, exactly. What could be more American than a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing? And that's the thing that speaks to me about what really American politics has yes. become. That's it. That Our political system right now, nobody gives a shit about doing anything good for the American people. No. It's all about, I'm going to go out and make a lot of fucking noise. Yes. I'm going to distract you from what's really right. going it's on. It's commotion. And uh, like a lot of people oh, said shit, on the tinfoil hat fell off. Right. The post that on. I put out there, it's the whole, it becomes about the hasty generalization, which unfortunately John fell victim to. You know, it's like, this is, I don't let me in with all conservatives. Yeah, exactly. Right. Or it becomes the ad hominem attack. Like, okay, let's just all attack John Towers. Okay. No, let's not. It wasn't this has about- nothing to do. I'm saying, I'm a Democrat saying this Republican is a good fuck. Guy. Yeah, it's I'm across good, the aisle. I'm, I'm reaching across right. the aisle, and I'm shaking hands with this one person. Right, and on and my point, the point that I think I made. T- 18 times over is that you know what this is why nothing gets done in Washington me and John Towers are a microcosm yes. of or we, we should be the exemplar of what should be done like yes. okay John you're a smart guy you have different opinions I have different opinions and I wanted to put something out there when John was joking and said listen while I was out polluting water I was going to say hey Dr. John Towers while you were polluting water today you know what I was doing I was out killing babies <laughs> because that's what liberals do Right. You know, but everybody yeah, would be like, oh, right. Everybody would be, I mean, I would, there would be a fucking avalanche upon me that well, nobody would able be, I would never get hey, myself out of that. If you're, if, and that's my problem. If you're going to abort a fetus, you may as well wash it away with some polluted water. Now, see, now that's funny. 
Now that's a story. See, that's the that's the that's the true storyteller in the room. John gets impassioned about his dirty water. I get impassioned about my killing babies, and you turn it all into a story. And that's why this whole thing works. And that's why we're going to take it to a break right now. That's right. (laughs) Because people need a break after that. Podcast. That was a great break, and we're going to talk a little bit about something we're late on, on uh, Harold Ramis. Love Harold Ramis. Um, you you were distraught. I was. He, I remember you posted a couple things on the social media, um, and, and I was too. I, I don't want to make light of it because Ramis, I, I don't think I realized it until after some of the folks were talking about the impact that he had on our society in terms of uh, society in terms of entertainment and writing and whatnot. He changed the, the, the humor forever. He did. He really did. And I have often said, and I think you and I have talked about this before, Dan. It's it's right up there. It's probably my f- number one of all time. I think Animal House is one of the best written comedic films of all time because it is so quotable it's a great comedy but it's a great movie it's a great story everything about animal house my style of humor um was impacted tremendously by ramus the work he did in animal house the work he did prior to animal house in sctv and nobody expected animal house to be anything either exactly It it was just this little Tiny movie that changed I, I, the world. Right. I love the I, – I have Animal House. I have the director's cut of that. And it really is – and the thing that appeals to me about that is like, again, not putting me, you, and some of our writer friends or would-be writer friends on that pedestal. But it's that same inspiration. It's like it's really that core group of like, hey, there's two or three guys that got together. They all had their quirky little stories. Yeah. They have their whole, hey, here's something that happened to me while I was going to college. And they cobbled it all together into one cohesive tale. And it is the ultimate college experience. Yeah. Told in a comedic stint, you know, from a 1950-something perspective. It is just – it's a timeless – and because it's in the 50s, that's why I make it. It's a timeless piece of work yeah. that you watch it now in 2014 and it's just as funny as it was <laughs> back in 1978. Exactly right. And that's the thing. And it became, because they were, and I think they did that in 78. They wrote it in the 50s because it's like, listen, if we date this 20 years ago, this will be funny forever. Yeah. Because it's not now going to be tied to 1978. And it was John Belushi's, right. it's what made John Belushi a star, too. That's exactly right. It is absolute comedy gold. Guess what it predates? What does it predate? SCTV. Yeah? Meatballs. Caddyshack. Stripes. 
all this, I mean, like, Harold Ramis is known for SCTV. A lot of people will mention SCTV whenever they talk about Ramis. And Meatballs and Caddyshack. I think Caddyshack was his, didn't he, he was a director in that. I think he co-wrote his directorial debut yeah. was Caddyshack. Third film mm-hmm. and his directorial debut. And he wrote that with Douglas Kenny. Mm-hmm. Kenny was a writer at National Lampoon Magazine. National Lampoon's of National Lampoon's Animal House, National Lampoon's Vacation, yeah. yada, yada, yada. And Brian Doyle Murray, who is Bill Murray's brother, and oh, who is also... That's right. And you, you, everybody, you know, listeners of the show, you know Brian Doyle Murray when you see him. Yeah. He's in Caddyshack. He, he works at the golf course, and he's the one who says, you see that blood over there? Well, pick it up. You know what I read about Bill Murray today when What's I was that? doing research for this? Bill Murray in Caddyshack, his part was supposed to be a very small part. Yes. And he was so popular on Saturday Night Live at the time. They only had him for like two or three days. So like all of his stuff, all of his scenes were done in two or three days. Yeah, and I think a lot of them were ad-lib. Cinderella story. Yes, we talked about that on the prior show. That's just him. He's just out there like ad-libbing that. They were like, yeah, go do something over there. Go do something interesting. Here's a golf club. Go whack at a couple of flowers. Here's a baby Ruth. Yeah, exactly. Everything is... um, the, the the Carl Spackler role is entirely, uh, well, 99% of it is entirely unscripted. Yeah. When we were talking about we should eulogize Harold Ramos, yeah. I think I had forgotten about his impact on SCTV. I was a big SCTV fan. Oh, I was too. I, I still don't know the whole origination and evolution of SCTV because there was the SCTV that came out of Toronto, yeah. which is the Dave Thomas, the Rick Moranis, the, yeah. the, the Eugene Levy, Joe Flaherty, et cetera. Yeah. That group that was the Canadian-based SCTV, but then there's the old Chicago-based SCTV, yeah, which is true. where a lot of the, S- yeah. the SNL folks came from, and which I, I believe is where Ramus came from. Yeah, and then, it, it wasn't like uh, Kids in the Hall, which was... Um, entirely Canadian. The Lauren Michaels... Yeah, Lauren Michaels was like, right. fuck you, Saturday Night Live, I'm right. going to Canada. Right. when During that period where he had been on Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live cast him aside and said, let's bring Dick Ebersol in. You go to Canada and Lorne, go back, take off to the great white north, you hoser. And then Lorne came back later and turned SNL back into the huge franchise uh, that it is still today. The Caveman Mafia did actually talk a little bit about Harold Ramis. Yeah. They beat us to it. Of course they did. I mean, because they're topical and they're quick. Right. So we need to go a little bit of a different direction with it, if we're well, be relevant. Well, right. I mean, I, I'm sure that um, they probably talked about the movies. Yeah, that, they did. Ramus did. My my whole thing about Ramus is, and it always will be, the guy was an incredibly gifted writer, and I think he Absolutely. always first and foremost he looked at it from that perspective. It's like I always say about Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd, while I think Aykroyd is funny, Belushi was clearly more talented as a performer. Aykroyd was a writer. He was born to be a comedic writer. Yes. Not a great comedic performer. His script for the Blues Brothers was unbelievable. When you know the backstory for what he did, the way he threw himself into the writing process, and Ramus was that guy as well. Ramus is the straight man. Aykroyd was a straight man. Yes. That's the thing. You need another performer there. Like, yes. Ramos was often tied to Bill Murray. Oh, he was yeah. Tied to Murray and had Caddyshack. He was tied to Murray and Stripes. He yes. was tied to Murray and Ghostbusters. Yes. Just like Aykroyd was tied to He Belushi. was okay being 
in the background. That's exactly right. He's like, okay, Bill, you're the guy. That's right. You're going to be in the front because this is what your talent is. And and the reason why I say this about the way I feel about Harold Ramis, there was something that I read about him that I didn't know. He had been tapped to direct that uh, monstrosity of a remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner <laughs> that was called Guess Who, I think. Mm. The one with uh, Ashton Kutcher and Bernie Mac. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 2004, uh, he turned it... I did it, not see that. He turned it down. And well, the, thank do, God do, for that. Do you, do you know why he turned it down? Because it sucked. But the key words, I'm going to read this verbatim. He considered it poorly written. <laughs> That's perfect. Exactly. I don't profess to know everything there is to know about writing. I don't. I think I know good writing when I see it. Oh, yeah. I I throw myself into that Supreme Court category of pornography. I know it when I see it. (laughs) I know good writing when I see it. But here's the thing, Dan, and I think you'll agree with this. Good writing is one thing. Good writing that's funny is fucking hard. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because a sense of humor is a crapshoot. You yes. don't know what's going to yes. make people laugh. Harold Ramis knew how to write and knew how to direct. He knew, he knew how to make, how to make it funny. Yeah. He knew he knew how to bring the funny as they say. He did. And what's his, your favorite Harold Ramis movie ever? Um writing or directing or both. That's a tough question. And and it I'm going to answer a tough question. It because I think ultimately I got to go back to Animal House because, again, as I said before, Mm -hmm. Animal House is probably my favorite comedy of all time. It stands the test of time. Ramus was involved in that. As I understand it, that was a three-part writing process. Who knows whose stories were which, but I don't care. If Ramus was responsible for 33% of it, great. If he was responsible, 99% of it, great. I could care less. That's probably my favorite comedic written film. We've talked about this many times over. I love the writing in the Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Ghostbusters, the first one is, I think, a better film. The writing in Ghostbusters 2 is dynamite. I love the writing. It's got lines. It's got, oh, yeah. it's quotable. It's, quotable. it's got a lot of good shit going on in it. Stripes, a lot of people will say, is great. Caddyshack, those movies stand the test of time. They do. Yes. And Groundhog Day, too. They, they're all... There's where I would it go. It doesn't matter. I think Groundhog Day, from a writing standpoint, is a great exercise in writing. Absolutely. It's fantastic. I mean... I mean, I think that if you... Uh, but if but you, I don't view... I don't look at Groundhog Day as a comedy. I look, no, it's, it's not. It's, it's because, absolutely not. It's, it's almost like surrealism. Yes. You know what I mean? I... From a writing perspective, that's probably the one that's more challenging, and I love where they went with it. From a pure, yes. that is awesome comedy writing. Animal House. If you look back, if you look back at his career, yeah. my my theory is a hundred years from now, if you look back on his career, his opus will be Groundhog Day. You're probably right because it, there's comedy. It's poignant. Mm-hmm. There's philosophy to it, and I'm not bullshitting. Every time I watch Groundhog Day, I get something more there, from it. You, and you, sh- and that's the thing. And I think that's what he meant. I think he dropped Easter eggs into that movie, like you're going to get something different yeah. out of this every time. And, and however stupid it may sound, Groundhog Day has made me a better person. The philosophy behind it, and the ideas behind it, the way that. Bill Murray goes through that movie and he's like, okay, I can make the perfect day. And it's whenever he finally gives up and he's like, you know what? I'm just going to make the best of this. I'm just going to be a good person. That's when it clicks. That's whenever he becomes interesting to his love interest. And, and, and there's something that I read about it that said 
that when you figure it out, he's been doing this for like hundreds of years. He's been going through that day. No, and it's when he finally lets go at the very end that he's allowed to, to to move forward again. The funny thing about what you're just saying there is something that a quote that I had pulled out of there, and I and I wish I could attribute this to whoever the author is, but I can't. I mean, I pu- I pulled this off the. Um, I'll be honest. I pulled it off the Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> Wikipedia is good, right? But. I think this is spot on. And it says his films have been noted for attacking the, quote, smugness of institutional life with an impish goodwill that is unmistakably American. They are also noted for Ramis's signature tongue in cheek pep talks. Sloppiness and improv are also important aspects of his work. Ramis frequently depicts the qualities of anger, curiosity, laziness and woolly idealism in a hyper articulate voice. And I think that's. That nails it, you know, where where you're talking about you may look at Groundhog Day. You could look at any of the stuff that he's done. Mm -hmm. There's a great deal of and I think that's what appeals to me about the writing of it, but also the performance of it. I know there's a lot of it that was scripted, but I also know going back to his improv days at SCTV, a lot of that was like, <laughs> hey, I'm fucking – there's a reason why he worked with Bill Murray six oh, times. Yeah. You know, it's like Murray's an improv guy. Those two guys got each other. Right, and and I know it, and I know what you're going to do, and here's, here's kind of where I want this to go, and I want this to be <laughs> – back to the Groundhog Day thing. I want this to be a commentary on – this is what you get. Yeah. If you have one day, this is what you can do in your one day, regardless of how many times you live that one day. Yeah. You know, I can I can just imagine the conversations between I think I can imagine the conversations yeah. between I like to think I can imagine the conversations between the writer and the performer. Where he would be like, Yeah, this is kind of what I want it to look like, Bill. And I want I want to do this, I want to convey this. This is an underlying this theme has to run throughout the movie. Do this, blah, blah, blah. But other than that, go. Go get them. Did you watch the Oscars? Yeah. Did you watch the whole thing? Yeah. Well, not the whole. I mean, I gave up. I gave up at a certain point. I I I regret the fact that I missed Bill Murray's tribute to. I saw that part. Yeah. Was it good? Yeah. It was. It was. It was touching. I mean, it was. Was it long or was it? No, it was very short. You see, that's what I respect from Bill Murray. Is is very succinct, very Mm -hmm. short, very poignant. I have no problem saying put a little lump in my throat, put a little tear in my eye because it's you, you have to imagine there was a tremendous kinship between those. Oh, guys. yeah, they were like brothers. Absolutely. I mean, you work with somebody. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I give your eulogy, <laughs> no. I'll say something. I love us. Right. I had left the room and I had come up and I started working on yeah. editing one of the podcasts and Norm McDonald's who I follow started blowing up uh, uh, <laughs> I love Norm uh, but he, hey, he told dad. He, he told, you know my dad's big head came around the building there you need a uh, car insurance yeah <laughs> He came. How sad is it that he's doing safe auto commercials? That's it. I couldn't remember the yeah safe auto. But he talked about how Harold Ramis flew him out to California to try out for a part. And if I'm reading the tweets correctly, Harold Ramis knew the whole time he wasn't going to give the part to Norm McDonald, but he wanted to meet him. So he flies out to California and he's like, you know, I was so excited because I really loved Harold Ramis and I loved his, his acting and I loved him as a writer. And I'm walking down the hall with this guy that is kind of portly, looks a little bit like Santa Claus. And I'm, I'm gushing to him about how much I love Harold Ramis and how excited I am going to be to meet Harold Ramis. And he's like, the Santa Claus guy looks, looks at me and he's like, 
Yeah, that's pretty funny because you just met him. Because in his mind, Norm MacDonald is seeing Egon. Yeah. But he's walking down the hall with Harold Ramis with a big beard and white hair and a little bit overweight and everything like that. The the end of the story is essentially Harold Ramis telling him, well, you know, I figured in New York and... You live out here in California. That's where your family's from. So I figured you could use a ticket. So I just wanted to kind of bring you out and meet you. That's, and that sounds so Harold Ramis. <laughs> it does, you know, doesn't it? Not knowing the guy, but still, I could imagine. I can see that. Um, I saw a, an image of the latter years of Ramis, and I can see that. Whenever you say to me, Harold Ramis. I see Egon. I picture Egon, or I picture... Um, what, what his character name? Uh, oh shit, I can't remember. It's like Rossiski or something like that in Stripes. But I also picture his, um, you know, back when he was Crazy Legs Hirschman on uh, SCTV. I mean, I'm always going to, I'm always going to associate him with. Uh, it's really going to be Egon Spangler, I guess. Is the the, the the latter years of Ramus? Yeah, exactly. You know, we're looking at the. Uh, Dan, 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 Dan's got a photo of, and that's you know that that if that if if Norm McDonald's description of him is um, correct, yeah, I mean, I mean, the years certainly didn't; they were no friend to Harold, but um, and I, and I mean that in the same. I mean, obviously, the years. Here, here's are, my favorite. That's the one that that's the one that I saw. That's the one, and I. It's and like, that's probably how he looked at. The, yeah, he was sixty-seven. Yeah. Dude, we have so little time sometimes. No, I hear you. I, I mean, that's I you, why I'm. That's why we do this is yeah. because I have no idea how much time we right. have. Right, and, and and the thing is, like, without getting cheesy, if I could put myself, if somebody said to you, Craig, pick one place, I would say, put me in the writer's room when Aykroyd and Ramus were writing Ghostbusters. <laughs> I would love Wouldn't that be awesome? to be there. I wouldn't, I, mean? I wouldn't even need to say anything or write anything. That's what I mean. Just, be, I, I want to be a fly on the yeah. wall. I just want to sit there and watch those guys. Or I want to sit. Th- I want to watch them at a table read when they're going through their ideas for both. Either one, Ghostbusters, yeah. Ghostbusters Two, whatever. Go b- put me back in the Caddyshack room when oh, yeah. Ramus is sitting there with Brian Doyle Murray and I'm sorry, the other guy, something, <laughs> Ken- something Kenny, uh, Douglas Kenny. I'm sorry. Um, put me in that room. Yeah. Go back to the animal. I would love. I mean, he was a comedic. Genius he was. and a writing genius, and the thing that 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 you, we often hear, and I, and I agree with this. One of the the hardest things to write is comedy. Oh, absolutely! It is hard to write comedy, and unfortunately, a lot of times, comedy is inspired by a lot of sadness. You hear yes. that about anybody who writes comedy, and this guy wrote so much damn comedy, yeah, that you'd wonder. Yeah, I would. He's one of those guys that I wish. Uh, this is where I wish I was at a different point in my career. You my sit down and have lunch with the guy. Me. Exactly. It goes back to the thing about if I could just sit down and have a cup of coffee with Harold Ramis and pick his brain for twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. And that's, and it's like, and that's a that'll question never for, happen. Yeah, and that's right. a question for our listeners. Right? How much money would you pay? Right. To sit down and have lunch with Harold Ramis. Right. Half an hour. An hour. An hour with Harold Ramis. How much is that worth? I mean, to sit down with this guy and just like you can't get his philosophy again, on life. Again, I understand people will say, "Well, you, you, your values are all fucked." No, they're, they're, they, they are yes and no. Yeah. The thing is, this is this is a passion of yours, mine, yeah. of storytellers, of people who appreciate 
Again, it's writing is hard. It's fucking hard. It is. It is hard to write something that appeals to so many people and inspires so many people. And in the days after Harold Ramis's death, there were tons of people, and I will say Judd Apatow and every comedic writer in the business right now said this is a, a devastating loss to us Absolutely. because Harold Ramis inspired everything I do. Yeah. Anybody who's under the, well, I, I guess you, if you, you have to look at his 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 span of or his sphere, his sphere of influence. If he was sixty seven, you really got to look at the people who are probably fifty and younger, forty five and younger, and whatever. Yeah. And that's a, a lot of the comedic films being made today. Although there aren't that many of them, but I mean, I just throw <laughs> Judd Apatow out there because he's at the top of the list. Anytime there's a comedy. He's up there, or anybody who's come from the SNL tree. Yeah. Um, Adam McKay, you know, the Anchorman guy, and, and anybody that works with Corral and Farrell. But they all come up through that tree of, of improv, and everybody bows at the altar of Ramus and Aykroyd and all that, the SCTV. And group. you know what's unique? And they about should. Them? Yeah, you know, that's should. the thing. They absolutely should. Because what's unique about them is that they wrote for themselves. Yeah. That's why it's funny. Yeah, absolutely. They weren't trying to please anybody. If they were trying to please anybody, it was one person. You know, it's like, hey, I'm going to write a story that I think Bill's going to think is funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were trying to make each other laugh. Exactly. Make that's each right. other laugh. That's right. Because that's how you write, honestly. Right. And that's the key is you make one other person laugh. Yeah. You write to that person or you write to that, you know, those couple people that are your friends. And you know what? There's other people that are going to find that funny. If you try to please everybody, you please nobody. No, that that's exactly right. If it's you the, try to please that one yeah. small group, then you're going to find your your niche. You're going to find your audience. Yeah, it's that. It's the old adage. However, you choose to frame that. I, I just heard this the other day again about the you know the king who if I choose to defend everything, I defend nothing. Exactly. Right. It's right. that whole like trying to write to everybody. I've written to no one. Yeah. Um. And and that gun goes back to a couple of the earlier episodes that we've had about when you when you have somebody that is able to influence and touch so many people. And I'm not just, I'm really not talking about it from, yeah, box office draw is nice for Animal House, for Caddyshack, for Ghostbusters. And, and he, Harold Ramis has had a lot or had a lot of financial success. He had a lot to of films too. He, sure, he did. But I don't think he it was a ever, movie with Robin Williams in uh, in Jamaica. Yeah, Club Paradise. Yeah, yeah, that was a bomb. Right, and uh, I liked it personally. But Armed and Dangerous. Armed and Dangerous. And, and, also and, a bomb. Right, and I and I think Armed and Dangerous. When when I look back at that, it's like I think Armed and Dangerous was back to what you just said. Armed and Dangerous was a whole. I'm pretty sure that was John Candy, Eugene Levy, and him. That was the whole. Hey, these are my old SCTV buds. This is a joke. We think this is hilarious. Areas. Yeah, we've written this. This means something to us. And this yeah. is a film that should be made. When Harold Ramis says, I'm going to pass on this shitty remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner <laughs> because I think it's poorly written. Yeah. But I'm going to make Armed and Dangerous because me, Eugene and John yes. got together and we, we, we threw this around. And this is funny to me. I'm going to invest more time in that. It's respect for right. what came before because it was well written. That's right. And it's respect for, hey, I'm doing this for my friends. If these three guys like it, then it means something. Yeah, and, and, and I don't want to get off track here, but like that, that does matter because we've talked about this. I know when I'm showing you poems that I've written, mm -hmm. there's a certain thing like, I want Dan to like this. 
Yeah. I want him to understand where I'm coming from. We talked a little bit about this with John Towers the few times that he was in the studio with us, where he was like, I prepare differently when I'm coming to talk with you guys. It's you mutual know, respect. Right, it is. It, I said that to, to John Towers before. I don't want to come on your show and disrespect you and your listeners. I want to bring my A game. And I and I imagine that when Ramus calls you and says, hey, I'm interested in this. I was just handed this script. I was given an option to direct this. I'd like you to be in it. I would like to think that everybody was like, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, if 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 Harold thinks it's a good idea, that, that's, that's a good idea. That's right, and I and I think I think he did command he that selective. type of respect from his yeah. peers and whatnot. I think in the last couple of years, I don't think he was as active in Hollywood because I think Hollywood has changed. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think they had respect for the fact mm. that he. I think he probably. This is. Just, I'm totally reading between the lines. I think maybe. There's a reason why when he passed away, he was living in Illinois, which he always would have done. He was born and raised there. He had a nice living there. But I think he fell out of the Hollywood scene despite his health and whatnot because he was probably, I fuck this. I don't like what Hollywood has out there right now. This is crap. Yeah. He's gone, so we can never validate that. But I have to imagine, because honestly, when was the last time you saw Ghostbusters? And I mean, I mean that in terms of, the script. When was the last time you saw an animal house? When did you see a Caddyshack? You, you, a Groundhog Day, as we keep talking about. Mm-hmm. Nobody makes those movies anymore. Yeah. They it's don't. few and far between. They don't. They don't. Hollywood doesn't work like that anymore. And I got to imagine, again, I, th- I think that's why you don't see Dan Aykroyd working much. Because he's probably like, writing as you folks know it in Hollywood, that's yeah. not writing. That's bullshit. Yeah. That's give me 93 minutes of script. Give me this. Give me that. Give me that. You know, I want every every seven pages. I want this. It's formula. Yeah. And that's what's unfortunate. It is. That's a, that's a sad note. We should uh, take and I'm sorry. Should, I mean, I. I no, I, no, no, no. There's nothing wrong with with with. I mean, that's that's a real story. A real story has a sad note. You've been listening to the Ninth Story Podcast, a Hicks and Fabulous production. I broke it.